This archived broadcast of Janet Mefford Today is brought to you by Kingdom Story Company's I Still Believe, available now for home viewing on demand, starring K.J. Apa, Britt Robertson, Shania Twain, and Gary Sinise. More information is available at istillbelievemovie.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us. The Atlantic recently printed a piece with this headline, Red and Blue America Agree That Now Is the Time to Violate the Constitution. People of both parties seem rather okay with undermining core civil liberties in order to fight the pandemic. And it's a story about a survey that was just conducted as state and local governments were starting to implement their most restrictive policies yet. And here's the disturbing part. It reveals a remarkable willingness on the part of Americans to tolerate civil rights violations, as they call them, in order to confront the pandemic, regardless of party affiliation. What are the important constitutional parameters all of us have to keep in mind as some of our individual freedoms may come under threat, supposedly in order to deal with the coronavirus? We're going to tackle this today with professor and recognized constitutional expert Rob Nadelson. He heads the Independence Institute's Constitutional Studies Center and its Article 5 Information Center. He's a nationally known constitutional scholar and author, and it's so good to have him here to talk about who does have the power to restrict Americans' freedom and under what circumstances. And it's great to have you with us, Rob. How are you today? It is a joy to be back with you, um, despite the sad circumstances, I'm afraid. Yes, it is very sad. These are very trying times, and yet, should we really be tossing our liberties aside so quickly? No, we shouldn't. Actually, the Supreme Court has got some pretty decent standards for this kind of situation. Uh, State and local governments have what are traditionally called police powers. Now, that word police doesn't refer to the cop on the beat. It refers to broad powers of governance, including powers to respond to emergencies like pandemics. Uh, However, The way they exercise those powers is constrained by the U.S. Constitution. And so, for example, well, take uh, stay-at-home orders, which interfere with the constitutional right to travel. Those orders are supposed to be narrowly tailored, uh, narrowly shaped to meet the problem, and not the kind of scattershot orders we've seen come down from a lot of states. So there is flexibility there. Nobody says that you have to toss the Constitution out to uh, uh, in, in the face of a pen- pandemic. But um, uh, but on the on the other hand, the Constitution continues in existence during this time. Yes. Well, talking about lockdowns, for example, there was a, a moment this week where the Virginia governor, Ralph Northam, issued an order that said all public and all private entities are forbidden from gathering with more than 10 people. And that also included churches. And that set off a lot of red flags for people because they said it's one thing to request that you not gather with more than 10 people, which I think most churches are complying with. But it's another thing for the governor to just whole hog say, you can't. I mean, even the Chicago mayor is now saying if you go outside, you could be arrested. I mean, isn't that way beyond the Constitution? Oh, I think so. Um, And that's because there are narrower ways to do it. I mean, again, the Supreme Court says that the right to travel, as well as several other related rights, religion would be another example, are fundamental rights. 
And that means they can be infringed somewhat in times of emergency, but the laws have to be targeted at the problem. You just can't shoot an ant with a shotgun. Right, right. Um, And so, so for example, it would be very appropriate to say to churches or to businesses, look, when you seat people, you have to follow the principles of social distancing. Uh, In the case of restaurants or churches, maybe limit the number of people in a particular area in a particular time. But to simply say, you know, you can't do this, period, goes well beyond what the Supreme Court requires. You know, Janet, the the unfortunate thing is that we seem to have to relearn this lesson every generation. And every generation we see an abuse of power uh, under the guise of an emergency, and then we say, you know, well, we won't make that mistake again. And we look back and we say, boy, those people were really idiots. <laughs> so during World War II, when they imprisoned 120,000 Americans of Japanese ancestry, oh, gee, we'd never do that again. So what are we doing? We're imprisoning literally millions of people now in their home on an epidemic, which, and I'm not going to I'm not going to under underplay it but an epidemic which has killed in its total number of people about half the the individuals that die of cancer in this country each day. Right, right. That, and that's what people do question. They say, well, hang on a minute, not just that statistic, but the statistic about the flu. Now they say, well, it's way more contagious and nobody's immune to it. So it's a different situation. And that may be true. But what I get really concerned about is when I'm looking, ex- for example, at this survey that I cited at the outset, where all of these Americans were asked these questions about under what circumstances they would give up their civil liberties for the fight against the coronavirus. And it was pretty much all of them. It was things like, should you criminalize speech? Should you force people to work in the health industry? Should you did, Would you be willing to be quarantined forcibly in a government facility? And, and probably these people are thinking, well, in certain circumstances, but just seeing these numbers is really shocking. Does no one understand you still have freedom even when there's a pandemic? I mean, you have to balance these things. To a certain extent, um, I think that's the result of the breakdown of the public education system. There really is no understanding of our founding principles of every person having certain inherent rights that come from the creator and that government cannot infringe those. Government has to protect those. That lesson really has not been learned. On the other hand, to put it in perspective, those kinds of surveys have actually been going on for some time. Every once in a while, you'll see a headline, and this goes back decades. 70% of American people don't favor free speech or don't favor freedom of religion. If you ask the question right, or you cat or you catch the person at the wrong time, you'll get an anti civil libertarian answer that you might not get in circumstances where the individual had a more thoughtful choice or had um I had the, uh, uh, the the options explained more clearly. Yes, that, that that's true. That's true. Although in this case, when I was reading about this particular survey, even when these respondents were told that these policies all may be unconstitutional, it didn't change their answers. So that indicates these people just don't care if it's constitutional. As oh, long yeah, as there are, yeah, there are a lot of people like that. I mean, I wrote an article which appeared in a, in a Colorado uh, website uh, yesterday, and um, I got profanity-laced responses uh, suggesting that what I could do with the Constitution effectively. Uh, After all, we're now in a 
time of necessity. I came across a great quotation from William Pitt the Younger, and as you probably know, Janet, he was the, the great British prime minister who steered Britain through the Napoleonic Wars. And he actually had to impose some restrictions on civil liberties uh, himself because uh, Britain was fighting for her life at that time. But the quote is still telling. Necessity is the plea for every infringement of human freedom. It is the argument of tyrants. It is the creed of slaves. That's powerful. That's really accurate, too. Amazing. Yeah, exactly. So when we're looking at what's going on right now, talking about lockdowns, for example, what would be a constitutional way to deal with it? As you said, there can be limited powers on the parts of these governors, for example, under a pandemic situation. But with some of what they've implemented, would you actually have to have the legislatures passing laws first uh, that are specific to the pandemic situation in order to go as far as some of these governors have gone? Let me uh, answer your two questions in inverse order. First, the governor, uh, him or herself, does not actually uh, have the power to do things like close down travel. The governor has to be empowered either by the Constitution or by statute. And generally, the governor will cite a particular statute or constitutional provision in issuing the emergency order. However, that having been said, some of these emergency statutes are not real clear, and you've got to be careful and make sure the governor isn't exceeding his or her um, authority. The other thing is to what would be, um, what would be more tailored, what would be constitutional. Um, I'm not an expert in this area, but I would suspect that it's certainly constitutional to say in the current circumstances that you can't assemble uh, in in large numbers, uh, that you can't have big parties, (laughs) that you can't take mass, you can't take mass transportation, you know, where you're crowded with 65 people crowded together on, on a bus. Um, On the other hand, I don't think it's appropriate at all to say you can't ride in an automobile where there's no chance really of the virus hopping from vehicle to vehicle. Exactly. I'll tell you what, let's take a quick break. Professor Rob Nadelson with us. We'll be back talking about freedom versus safety. Stay with us. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. This is Janet Mefford, and we're partnering with the Bible League on Stand With Them, Bibles for the Persecuted Church. Paul reminded Timothy that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Persecution is defined as suffering for the sake of Christ and His glory, and it comes in many forms all over the world. In India, it's being shunned by Hindu family members. In China, it's the loss of church buildings. In the Middle East, it could be jail or even death at the hands of extremists. Isaiah is a new Christian praying for the nourishment that comes only from God's Word. Send him a Bible for only $5. $100 sends Bibles to 20 Christians, and a limited-time match will double your gift. Help us help Bible League send the hope of God's Word to 1,200 persecuted believers. All you have to do is call 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. 800-YES-WORD. From Kingdom Story Company comes I Still Believe. Available now for home viewing on demand. Based on the real-life true story of chart-topping singer Jeremy Camp, I Still Believe reminds us that amidst life storms, true hope can be found in Christ. You chose willingly to walk into the fire with her. 
That's what love is. I Still Believe. Starring K.J. Apa, Rick Robertson, Shania Twain, and Gary Sinise. More information is available at istillbelievemovie.com. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back talking about the coronavirus pandemic's effects on constitutional liberties. And this is a really important subject. We've seen all kinds of maneuvers in the last week in particular, where we've seen, for example, the U.S. Department of Justice quietly asking Congress for the ability to ask chief judges to detain people indefinitely without trial during emergencies. Professor Rob Nadelson is with us from the Independence Institute talking about this. What do you make of the DOJ's request to detain people indefinitely without trial during emergencies? What is that all about? Yeah, I think that what that's really about is when people are in prison, they normally would have the right to request a writ of habeas corpus, which is a writ directed to whoever is imprisoning them, uh, ordering that person to bring the prisoner to the court and justify the imprisonment. And that is a very, very old right going back centuries to England before the time we were ever uh, created, uh, before a time uh, the United States was created. Uh, and it is... Uh, recognized, in fact, as a right in the U.S. Constitution. Um, There's a maxim here, or a kind of lesson, and that is that, you know, whenever a person specializes in an area, uh, that area of specialty seems to become more important to that person, and it trumps everything else. One noted economist put put it to me like this. He said, Rob, Imagine that you're an engineer and you're designing and building dams. You're, you're doing this for hydroelectric power. You're doing this for, uh, for water conservation, for, for um, uh, preserving uh, lakes and so forth, uh, for uh, flood control. To you, suddenly the dams become the most important thing in the world. And you can see why all other concerns, why the government, for example, could never fund enough dams. All other concerns yield to this. Well, bureaucrats are the same way. In fact, they may be worse. Uh, Bureaucrats have their little niches, as do other technocrats, uh, people involved in public health, for example. And to them, whatever they do is the most important thing in the world, and everything else has to yield to it. So, for example, Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, has commented that, gee, if I can only save one life, no matter what I do, if I can only save one life, I'll be satisfied. That's exactly the wrong way to think about it even though it sounds good, because if you destroy the economy while you're saving that one life, you're going to create hunger and malnutrition and suicides and so forth. And you may very well destroy more lives than you save. So a lot of what's going on is this tunnel vision thinking that comes from from technocrats and bureaucrats, which is a good reason why we should never let bureaucrats run the country. Here, here. Exactly. And you're right about that. Whatever's in front of me, my interests will always take precedence over, you know, whatever the thing is that's in the way at the time. What about the governor of Nevada? 
telling doctors, the ones outside of hospitals, because I guess this is okay for inpatients, that they cannot prescribe hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin, even though those are FDA approved drugs and they've been prescribed for a number of years. He's trying to stop hoarding. That's a good thing. But there are people who are really mad at him and say, who are you to tell doctors that they can't do make a medical decision for a patient? Well, if he's authorized to do that by Nevada law, I think that that's probably constitutional. I mean, that that would that's. I mean, I'm not saying whether it's a good or a bad thing. Right. I'm saying that it would fit. Uh, it would fit within the state's general police power. I think. Okay, so that one is okay. What about people in California who have challenged, for example, San Jose's authority to force the closure of a gun shop uh, because they say we have a right under the Second Amendment to arm ourselves? What about that one? Well, that's a little tougher, and, and, and here's why I say that. If, if the closing of the gun shop is part of a general order that stores close, uh, then it's probably constitutional. Yeah. If, however, it can be demonstrated that the purpose of the closure is targeted at gun shops, if the purpose of the cl- closure is to infringe people's Second Amendment rights, that's not okay. Let me give you an example out of the religious freedom area. There's a very famous case decided in 1990 by the U.S. Supreme Court that dealt with the uh, uh, religious use of peyote among certain certain Indian tribes and the fact that Oregon prohibited that. Well, uh, the Supreme Court said that's okay if it's just part of a general ban on peyote. But if you're out there trying to target religion or target particular religions and people's First Amendment rights, that's not okay. Right. So there is a matter of party of motivation. Yeah, that makes a big difference. And here was something else that was pointed out about Northam's executive order, closing all pro- public and private entities from having gatherings of more than 10 people. They also said in Virginia, liquor stores were essential businesses. <laughs> so yeah. that's when people get a little cranky. They say, well, wait a minute, you're closing everybody down liquor stores are essential mm, hard to oh, really wait, say that oh, but. Oh, Janet, it's crazier crazier than that in the state in which i sit which is colorado okay the city of denver came out with an order closing virtually all stores people realized that their liquor stores were going to be closed down they lined up in huge lines of course and and in the to, to get into the liquor stores no doubt exchanging germs while yeah. they were doing that yeah so so denver changed its order so now among the essential services that people can access are um, pot shops, you know, marijuana shops, <sighs> and liquor stores. Interestingly enough, there is not a corresponding exemption for cigar dens, you know, or for tobacco shops. Yeah. Now, why is that? Well, it's, of course, because the lobby in Colorado, the lobbies for, for, for liquor and for pot are stronger than the lobbies for tobacco. Right. This is evidence. This is the kind of evidence that the Supreme Court looks at when it determines whether or not a, a government's order is narrowly tailored to deal with the problem or whether it's just a scattershot or a politically motivated thing. Good grief. Well, now, what about the whole issue of emergency powers? Can you give us a little bit of a lesson on one, you know, how those are limited, how far they extend? What, what do we really need to understand from a constitutional perspective about the limits on, on what they can do and, and what might be further in violation that we're seeing, you know, cases that I haven't even mentioned here? Well, uh, emergency powers are a branch of something I mentioned earlier, the police power, the, the state's general power to govern. By the way, the federal government does not have police power. 
um, except in the District of Columbia and other federal enclaves and federal territories. Hmm. Within the states, only the states have police powers, and emergency powers are a subset of those. And they're very, they are indeed very broad. They would include things like closing businesses and pre- preventing um, assemblies and imposing quarantines and require, requiring vaccinations and so forth. The limitations on the police power or on the emergency powers are those that are in the state and federal constitutions. So um, let's say in time of war, you might have to restrict uh, the press to a certain extent. But if you did that, again, the, the, the order restricting the press would have to be very narrow, targeted at the evil and not too broad. Mm-hmm. And, and um, that would be true of other rights that are at stake, like freedom of religion and, and, and the right to travel. Right. But now when you're saying that the federal government does not have police powers except in places like D.C., then the the possibility of having a national shutdown would be not possible, right, if that's the case? Unless it I was sta- would, state by state I, then. I think, yeah, I think that would be clearly unconstitutional. As, as you and I both know, we have um, an increasing number of sheep, excuse me, citizens who look to the federal government for everything. Yes. And they think that... Uh, you know, they, they, they've stopped uh, branding President Trump as a closet fascist and authoritarian uh, to, uh, and are now demanding that he take more power and, you know, uh, exercise uh, greater authority yeah. uh, to protect them. Um, that notwithstanding, the, the fact remains that the federal government is a government of limited enumerated powers. The the role of the federal government, and I'm speaking as a constitutional originalist here, the role of the federal government in an epidemic like this is such things as um, closing the borders to make sure that people don't uh, come in, perhaps regulating interstate commerce to prevent the... uh, uh, the pa- the uh, uh, passage of a of an epidemic from state to state, the huge spending program that both parties have just signed on to, is I think both fiscally and constitutionally abhorrent, <laughs> and we will regret it when we wind up paying the debt under yeah. it. Yes. So even though you've got a lot of people looking to the federal government to to um, to do everything to fight the epidemic. It is really constitutionally and fundamentally a state and local job. Yeah, it really is. What about this idea of nationalizing the medical supply chain? I know that one has been thrown around and people have said, well, wait a minute. You know, Trump was excoriated by people in the media. I think it was the New York Times uh, took him out of context with a quote that he had on a conference call with the governors where he was saying you might want to try to get your own supplies because it might be faster than relying on us. But what about this national this, nationalize that, as this is just the totalitarian impulse of leftists, or how do you see that? Yeah, it's exactly, it's a totalitarian impulse. Unfortunately, we've got a large part of our body politic, and this is, this is a fairly recent development within the last 20 years or so. Uh, folks on the left who were not traditional liberals, uh, traditional liberals didn't care that much about economic freedom, but they did care a lot about personal freedoms. The current gang uh, uh, of what I call the left VAFA, uh, doesn't care about um, uh, freedom at all. I no, mean, no. they really are soft totalitarians, sometimes hard totalitarians. I mean, the greatest, the, the quickest way to destroy uh, a, a facet of the economy, as you know, is to nationalize it. Let, yeah. let me give you an example, which isn't exactly nationalization, but this craziness about hoarding toilet paper and such. Yeah. You know, the grocery stores could put an end to that in a flash. 
Yes. All they have to do is let the price float up. In other words, if they let the price go up with the demand so that it's now, let's say, $20 for a six-pack of toilet paper, suddenly the hoarding all, uh, and the excess buying would cease True. Um, because people couldn't afford it. It would stay high for a few moments and then start back down. The reason why they can't let the price float up is because they're scared to death that the politicians will accuse them of price gouging. Yeah. And you'll have yet another movement for more regulation over the economy. That is a really good point. Well, Professor Rob Nadelson, always good to talk to you. Professor, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. All right. God bless. And we'll be back right after this. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Bible League. Your gift of $35 will send seven Bibles to Christians in need, and your gift of $100 will send 20 Bibles. And right now, with a matching gift, your gift will be doubled. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. As I've been telling you, we are so very grateful for your support right now for Bible League here at Janet Mefford Today. We are trying to get 1,200 Bibles to persecuted Christians around the world by the end of April. This is such an important ministry that needs to carry on. And for a $35 gift, you can send seven Bibles. A $100 gift will send 20 Bibles. And there is a Bible for Bible match going on right now. I love that. So friends of Bible League will match every gift made by Janet Mefford for today, listeners. So once we meet our goal of 1,200 Bibles, that number will be doubled to 2,400 Bibles with the match. Now, you might be wondering, what is going on with persecuted Christians around the world? Why do they need all of these Bibles? Well, we're going to tell you about it. But first, we'll give that number to you. If you'd like to donate, it's 800 yes Word 800 Yes Word. There's also a Bible League banner to click at JanetMefford.com if you can give give a gift today. And that number again, toll free is 800 Yes Word. So we're going to tackle this subject, very important subject about why Bibles are so important to be sending around the world right now. Michael Woolworth is joining us, Senior Director of Broadcast Media at Bible League International. Michael, it's so good to have you here. How are you doing? Janet, I'm doing well. I'm social distancing. I had a, a neighborhood kid stop by and, and deliver something to me today. I said, why are you out of school? She said, they're out of toilet paper. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so well, anyway. there you go. That, the times in which we're living, right, Michael? That is Absolutely. amazing. Hey, Janet, before I toss it back to you at the end, let me bring your listeners up to speed on where we are, because we've got some exciting news. But, Great. Janet, yeah, it, it's not enough to just curse the darkness. I mean, it's right to call persecution out for what it is. It's human rights violations. It happens you know, right under our noses. And yet today what we're doing is going a step beyond that, and we're doing something about it. And that's why I'm pleased to pop on for a few moments uh, with you today and talk about persecution around the world. Can I share a very startling statistic? Please do. Yeah, every five minutes, and this comes from a source that, that we trust at, at Pew Research that keeps a very close finger on the pulse of persecution around the world of religious bodies, and they say that every five minutes somewhere in the world, 
a Christian is killed simply because of their faith. Let me put some perspective to that. By the end of the average hour-long worship service in America, if that statistic is true, that means that a dozen Christians will die simply because they believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Now listen, I know when we talk about Christian persecution and death, that's extreme. I'm not saying that happens in every case, but I can tell you that at Bible League, a ministry that's 82 years young, we serve all over the world, Janet. We know Christians by name in villages, in places like Asia, Africa, the Middle East, and Latin America, who are singled out, targeted, monitored. They've been rejected by family and communities. They've been threatened with death, simply again, because they believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so uh, we're, again, doing something about it through this uh, shared effort that we're calling Stand With Him, Bibles for the Persecuted Church. And I'd love to tell you today about a pastor and a group of people, about 500 strong, that are praying for Bibles. And this is a group that we want to help through this campaign. Can I do that? Yes, please. Yeah, let me tell you about a man by the name of uh, Katsu. He's an evangelical pastor in his uh, early 50s. Uh, He's outside of Beijing, China. I won't identify the village. But, Janet, he has been arrested about 20 times. He's been beaten. He's been jailed not merely for what he believes as an evangelical pastor, but for the way he lives out his faith. He's been uh, sharing the gospel. He does door-to-door evangelism. He's seen people come to Christ. He's baptized them. He's uh, discipled them to be able to create other disciples, exactly the model that we see in the Bible that we're all about at Bible League. Well, this man had been beaten so severely uh, most recently that he could not get up for three days. They uh, were after a total humiliation. They would put uh, chopsticks on his head. They would say, stand on one foot. If you lose your balance, we're going to pummel you. And that's exactly what they did. And they did send him home. They told him to never speak of Jesus again. I can tell you this man's wife was very relieved to find out that he had not been killed for his faith or uh, held indefinitely. But about a week later, a knock came on his door. It was in the evening. He was a little reluctant to open that door. But Katsu opened the door to find a man by the name of Hayo. Who was Hayo? One of the interrogators that beat this man severely. In fact, he was known as a champion of persecuting Christians, Janet, in that part of, uh, of, of China. And I can tell you, all week in his heart and his mind burned a question. He had to have the answer to it. And it was, why were you at such peace when we were beating you? And so this man, Katsu, would open his door, would open his Mandarin Bible, and lead this bitter atheist, this man named Hayo, to faith in Christ there uh, in China. And I can tell you that uh, this story is about a few months old, and I can tell you that every time it is shared around that part of China, more and more people come to Christ because they see in this man, Katsu, a willingness to suffer for the gospel. But Janet, I've got a Mandarin Bible in front of me. Uh, it's uh, radio. I know that people can't see it, so let me describe it to you. It's got a basic black cover, no markings on it. I know it's intentional. Uh, this was translated by Bible League several years ago. You open it up. It's the beautiful Mandarin print. But frankly, this Bible means nothing to me. Why? I don't speak Mandarin, Janet. I, I would guess you probably don't either. Nope. But to about 500 Christians right now who are part of the house church movement, all under the auspices of this godly man, Katsu, uh, they would give anything, anything for what sits before me today because they have virtually no Bibles uh, in the congregations. Listen, they gather when they can, they worship the Lord, 
They tell others about Christ, but again, they are in a part of the world, in a country, where the communist government is doing everything it can to criminalize Christianity, and that's exactly why we're holding this campaign. Again, they would give anything. They're willing to suffer if they can get a Bible. And Janet, that's what your listeners can do today, is to send the precious Word of God to these brothers and sisters in China who aren't praying for an end to that persecution. They know that God is working through stories like Katsu's and Hayo's to lift high the name of Jesus and to see the Great Commission go forth. But let me just ask your listeners, get involved with this today. Jana, we're about a third of the way to our goal. We want to keep going. We'd love to surpass the goal, and that's what your listeners are doing. Listen, I know they're deeply concerned about the coronavirus and their communities, but I'm so thankful that your listeners are people that can think beyond and have a global focus and share that concern with others. Absolutely. Well, let me remind listeners, for a $35 gift, you can send seven Bibles, and because of this Bible for Bible Match that I mentioned earlier. Once we meet our goal of 1,200 Bibles sent to the persecuted church around the world, that number will be doubled to 2,400 Bibles. And think of all the Christians who will be so grateful to get a Bible in their own language for the very first time. Here's how you can donate. It's 800-YES-WORD. Donate by calling 800-YES-WORD. Again, that number is 800-YES-WORD. Or there is a Bible League banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Michael, one of the things I wanted to address is something that you just mentioned a moment ago. We get a lot of medical news out of China right about now, and you're sharing what is even more important news, and that is what the Lord is doing in the lives of a lot of Chinese Christians and non-Christians who are coming to know the Lord because of the faithfulness of those Christians who are living in that communist society. And yet, I recognize, as you do, that this is a trying time for a lot of people in the United States. A lot of Christians who are worried about the economy, they're worried about their jobs. What would you say to those listeners about how grateful you are for listener support right now in this campaign? Well, you know, our Genesis came Good Friday, 1938, an act of worship on the part of a man who was on his deathbed, his elder prayed, the health returned, and they began to engage people. This was the hunger God put on their heart, was to engage people with the scriptures. And I know that they always envisioned, Janet, that there would be groups of people that would say, you know what, there's a lot going on in the world, a lot that competes for our uh, attention. But we need to be reminded that the gospel is going forth. Isaiah 55, and the prophet says, here's what God says, my word will go forth, it will not return void, it will accomplish its purpose. And today we have this opportunity, half a world away from China, people we won't meet this side of eternity, who are again not praying for it into all the suffering, but they're praying for the word of God, so they can grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. And, and Jane, I mentioned earlier, if, if you're singled out, targeted, monitored, threatened with death, just because you believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, you need to be able to open the pages of Scripture and read where Jesus says, I'm with you always. Hey, you'll have trials and tribulations, count on that, but I've overcome the world. And so um, that's the privilege we have right now. That's the responsibility and the joy, frankly, that we have to be able to send God's world, even half a world away. I know it's a tough ask. It's so tempting to say, let's focus only here and now. But the gospel's going forth. I hope your listeners are reminded of that today and really encouraged by what we've seen so far from your your radio family, Janet. We're asking, I love it. Uh, you know, get, get involved with this. I love see, it. See the gospel go forth. Yep, absolutely. Call now. It's 800-YES-WORD. 800-YES-WORD. Michael Woolworth, thanks for being here, and we'll be right back.
The healthcare open enrollment period has ended. Did you miss it? Don't go a whole year without having a healthcare program. Sign up with Liberty HealthShare. As a Christian healthcare sharing ministry, Liberty HealthShare is not insurance, so you can still sign up. In fact, you can sign up any time of year, and there are no contracts. Starting as low as $199 a month, Liberty HealthShare has memberships for singles, couples, and families, so you can choose the ideal program for your situation. Plus, Liberty HealthShare has no network, so you're free to pick your own doctors, hospitals, and providers. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Go to libertyhealthshare.org JMT for more information. libertyhealthshare.org JMT. This is a story of a young mom in crisis who felt alone and desperate when finding out she was pregnant. After meeting with the counselors at Preborn and seeing her baby on ultrasound and hearing the heartbeat, she knew that life was the best choice. My mind changed completely from the abortion the first time that I visited. When a mom in crisis sees her baby on ultrasound and hears the heartbeat, eight out of ten times, she'll choose life. I know God wouldn't have wanted me to just throw out my blessings like that. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country and the direct competition to Planned Parenthood. Will you please join Preborn in providing love and support for young moms in crisis? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help save five babies' lives. Just call 855-402-BABY. 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. 855-402-BABY. Or there's a preborn banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. I have to say, Representative Stephanie Borowitz of Pennsylvania, boy, does she rock. She's great. And I don't pay an awful lot of attention to her on a daily basis, but this is the woman you might remember from a year ago, a first year member of the Pennsylvania House at that time offered a prayer at the time of the swearing in of the first Muslim woman to enter the office there in that chamber. And she just got skewered for praying this prayer. I actually thought this prayer was great. I want to play it for you in just a moment, but she's in trouble now. I don't know so much trouble as she is just getting ribbed again over a House resolution that she submitted that, well, let's see, let's look at the Pennsylvania Capital Star headline. It says, in resolution, Pennsylvania lawmaker blames COVID-19 outbreak on our presumptuous sins. And it's a really snarky little commentary. And the commenter says here, John Mysick says, it's been a while since we've had occasion to write about freshman state representative Stephanie Borowitz, the Clinton County culture warrior, whose reputation seems to rest solely on introducing the most polarizing legislation that she can. From efforts to help counties establish most likely unconstitutional Second Amendment sanctuaries and a heartbeat abortion ban bill to a bit of gratuitous Islamophobia, the Republican lawmaker has made no shortage of headlines in her brief time under the Capitol Dome. And then he references this House Resolution 835, a non-binding resolution that declares March 30th, Monday, a state day of humiliation, fasting and prayer in Pennsylvania, because she says the COVID-19 epidemic that's claimed the lives of thousands worldwide and six in Pennsylvania at the time may be but a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous 
since. Now, the worst thing you can possibly do during this COVID-19 outbreak, according to the world, is to bring God into it. You don't want to bring God into it because that's offensive. Even for people who say we don't even believe in God, they're offended. They're mad. Why? Because they have eternity in their hearts and they have consciences that may have been somewhat seared, but they're still created in God's image and they still bear his image and likeness in their very nature, even though they are fallen into sin as we all are. And they don't want to be reminded that there's a God to whom they'll be accountable. So they don't like when people do things like this. But I want to remind you of what Stephanie Borowitz prayed a year ago. And then I want to tell you a little bit more about her resolution. Listen to this great prayer from Representative Stephanie Borowitz of Pennsylvania. Go. Jesus, I thank you for this privilege, Lord, of letting me pray, God, that I, Jesus, am your ambassador here today, standing here representing you, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the great I am the one who's coming back again, the one who came, died, and rose again on the third day. And I'm so privileged to stand here today. So thank you for this honor, Jesus. God, for those that came before us, like George Washington and Valley Forge and Abraham Lincoln, who sought after you in Gettysburg, Jesus, and the Founding Fathers in Independence Hall, Jesus, that sought after you and fasted and prayed for this nation to be founded on your principles and your words and your truths. God, forgive us. Jesus, we've lost sight of you. We've forgotten you, God, in our country. And we're asking you to forgive us, Jesus, that your promise and your word says that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek your face and turn from their wicked ways, that you'll heal our land. Jesus, you are our only hope. God, I pray for our leader, Speaker Terzai, Leader Cutler, Governor Wolf, President Trump, Lord, thank you that he stands beside Israel unequivocally, Lord. Thank you that Jesus, that we're blessed because we stand by Israel and we ask for the peace of Jerusalem as your word says, God. We ask that we not be overcome by evil and that we overcome evil with good in this land once again. I claim all these things in the powerful, mighty name of Jesus, the one who at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus that you are Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I love it. I just love it. I love her. I wish every Christian lawmaker were just like her. I really do. Because she's not treating Christianity as if it's one religious option among many. And what we all really subscribe to is a civic religion in which we all put our gods aside and agree to have a civic deity of some sort. No, she's an unashamed Christian. I am not ashamed of the gospel. That was awesome. And in fact, the Muslim woman who was being sworn in right after she offered that prayer said the prayer was highly offensive to me, my guests, and other members of the House. It blatantly represented the Islamophobia that exists among some leaders, blah, blah, blah. There wasn't one word about Islam in it, but the name of Jesus is offensive. It's a stumbling block, just like the Bible says. So coming up to this latest House resolution, she modeled it apparently after Abraham Lincoln's resolution, a similar proclamation that was issued in the depths of the Civil War. He had declared March 30th, 1863, a National Day of Humiliation, Fasting, and Prayer, but it doesn't stop them from going after her. But it's great 
It's great. She said, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but she says, whereas since March 11th, the United States has been in a time of crisis. And whereas during the pandemic of 2020 and the ensuing uncertainty and anxiety of this time, Pennsylvanians may be comforted by turning to a day of humiliation, fasting and prayer, as well as the wise words of our great president, Abraham Lincoln. And whereas the House devoutly recognizes the supreme authority and just government of almighty God and all the affairs of men and of nations, it's the duty of nations and men to own their dependence upon his overruling power. And it goes on and on. May we not justly fear that the awful calamity of the pandemic, which now desolates this commonwealth, may be but a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins to the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people. And it goes on. It's just, it's great. It's exactly what we need as a nation. And it strikes me that so many Christians want to tiptoe around this idea that in fact, a pestilence could in fact be some form of judgment against the United States or the world. It's not just the United States that's suffering, it's the world. And what I have seen online, which I have really appreciated, is a number of comments from some very thoughtful Christians who have made Really good points. They're saying, we don't know if this is a direct judgment from God for a particular sin or a particular thing that we have done, but we certainly know that we're a sinful nation. We certainly know that we need repentance. And we certainly know that when God uses natural calamities, that's proclaiming his holy judgment. As Dr. Joseph Piper says, he wrote a great piece over at uh, Greenville Presbyterian Seminary's webpage, he said, God indeed is long suffering and slow to anger, but throughout history, he acts periodically in temporal judgments. It is safe to say that nothing of such worldwide import has occurred since World War II. God is judging the nations for their idolatry and corruption. But let's come closer to home. Is not God judging the United States? Approximately 140,000 abortions have been performed in this calendar year alone. We have perverted the holy relationship of marriage with sexual promiscuity, adultery, pornography, and sodomy. Amongst our many idols are sports and materialism. And he asks the question, is the lion roaring? And he's referencing this passage back when he's talking about Amos. And it's very important for people to think about these things because he says the pandemic is according to God's holy will, but we have to ask what he's doing. Amos demonstrates the relation of cause and effect by a series of rhetorical questions about cause and effect. Amos asked, do two men walk together unless they have made an appointment? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion growl from his den unless he has captured something? Does a bird fall into a trap on the ground when there is no bait in it? Does a trap spring up from the earth when it captures nothing at all? If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people tremble? And then he applies the relationship to the works of God in chapter three, verses three through eight. And you'll know this verse. If a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? Surely Adonai, the Lord does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets, a lion has roared, who will not fear? Adonai, the Lord has spoken, who can but prophesy. And the point here that Dr. Piper is making is not that we have a specific word from the Lord on what exactly he is giving the pandemic to the world over, but it's a chastening and a training of his people at the same time, in addition to showing us who he is. And who's really in charge? Don't we need periodic reminders of that? 
that we are not sovereign, that we are not in control, and that indeed we are completely dependent upon God for every breath we take, and we are completely dependent on God for salvation because we all deserve to go to hell, every last one of us. And it's a reminder to turn to him in faith and repentance and to appreciate the wonderful gifts that he has given to us and to return to him in obedience if we have wandered away from him. And that's part of what this can teach his church. As Dr. Piper points out, we are not exempt necessarily from the sufferings of the virus. Peter teaches that judgment begins with the household of God, but this is not a judgment of punishment for Christians, but of chastening. And we ought to keep that in mind. So no, we shouldn't laugh at Christians who are pointing out what the word of God says. Ralph Jollinger over at Capital Ministries is being skewered for doing a Bible study talking about God's judgment on America. And is it really happening? He does an incredibly thorough biblical analysis, which they just blow off. How dare you say God would judge us? Well, if you think the pestilence through which we're living right now is some sort of temporary judgment, just wait until the last judgment because that's coming for sure as well. And we all better repent and turn to the Lord. He is holy and he is worthy of our praise. Thanks so much for listening to Janet Mefford today. This hour of Janet Mefford today is brought to you by Kingdom Story Company's I Still Believe, available now for home viewing on demand. Starring KJ Apa, Britt Robertson, Shania Twain, and Gary Sinise. More information is available at istillbelievemovie.com.